Today's reading is Daniel 7. So I'll give you a moment to flip there. Now, as I read this, um, even as I'm reading it, it doesn't make lots of sense to me. So it's okay. It doesn't make lots of sense to you. And I hope that um, Scott will bring grace and clarity to all of us um, today. Daniel 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up uh, on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another one, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one that like a son of man, coming from the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. 
that the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws. The beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them, until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favour of the holy people of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change uh, the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times and a half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. This is the word of the Lord. church. It is a difficult passage. It has been read and we have prayed. So let's jump in. But it's been a few weeks. We've had two weeks out of Daniel. So it's worth noting where are we up to. It's no surprise that Daniel 7 follows the first six chapters. But the first six chapters clearly show why God's people should remain faithful to him in the midst of oppression and persecution. As the, culture, as the culture persuades them to give up and follow the gods of Babylon, the easier path. And throughout all, we've been drawing parallels with our culture, that really our culture tries to persuade us, convince us, that really, like our culture tries to persuade us to give up too, that all roads lead to God, or rather than the best life for you now, is just embrace all that our culture has to offer. I don't know if you've felt this during our sermon so far, but our impression in Australia seems slightly distant from that of Daniel and his friends. Because for Daniel, it's give up on God or die. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Bow down to the false god or burn. And in Australia, that feels still quite distant. But it's worth noting that there are places where that pressure is truly felt. There are things that get me emotional, it's the persecution of Christians. So, yeah, strap in. <laughs> in the 2021 International Christian Concerns Report, they investigated the increasing pressure of Christians in China. The report said the Chinese Communist Party has increased its pressure, which is now being felt now in all regions of China. The CCP's goal is to prevent religious influence from threatening their religious control. Churches are destroyed, and they're told unless they promote communist beliefs, they'll be considered to be gatherings. It's not the worst. And he found out this year that North Korea, the hardest place on earth for Christianity, 50,000 Christians in concentration camps. In a country where Kim Jong un is treated like a god, where his father and his grandparents though dead are worshipped. They are going through Babylon. Alright, go back down. But is that what being Christian is all about? Why are Christians suffering? Didn't Jesus have the victory? Why does it feel like there are places in the world where Jesus is in control? Well, Daniel 7 is going to help us because through its strange, unusual style of writing, with its vivid images, it prepares and teaches us the world and its relationship to God. We're going to tackle it in three points. First one is probably the more technical one, it's struggling. It's welcome to the apocalypse. Second, the beast oppresses all the time. And third, God's people receive the kingdom forever. So, first point, apocalyptic literature. Welcome to the apocalypse. Now, in this first point, I hope that we're going to introduce this strange style of writing because for the next five chapters of Daniel, we're going to be in this style. And so I want to touch on vision itself, how does it work, and so on. Strap yourselves in. So, Daniel has a vision and he writes it down. And as a vision, it fits into what is known as apocalyptic literature. You find this in the later end of Daniel, parts of Ezekiel, and also the book of Revelation that we have read. Through, it uses images and creatures to represent kingdoms. 
It depicts a zoomed out view of history from heaven's perspective. It's worth noting that they are highly debated. So if you'd like to discuss this passage in greater detail about why I'm wrong later, that's okay. Normal features of these visions involve getting a glimpse of heaven. There is judgment. There are angels everywhere. Strange animals and conflicts which seem to link earthly struggles with heavenly ones. And often, and this is a great thing, is that there are often interpretations given. We don't have to make it up. The angel will tell us. We're going to see that in verse in Daniel 7. The first half of our passage, 1 through 14, introduces the dream. The beast, the ancient of days, the defeat of the fourth beast, and then the son of man. The second half is Daniel getting an angel in his dream to interpret the dream. The focus being on the fourth beast and the kingdom of God, the people of God. It's worth noting that the second half explains the first. Right, with that under our belts, let's jump into the first or to the vision. So beasts one, two, three, and then four in greater detail. So the vision. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from others, came up out of the sea. Just pause there and go, it's like a new creation image there. But a new creation image that's not positive. It's a sea giving birth to things that will be opposed to God's people. The first was like a lion. It had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. It's referring to Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. We remember from earlier chapters that he spent time as an animal and then eventually his mind of a human was returned to him. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your flesh. Depicting the Medes and the Persians, it's lopsided because of an unequal power balance between the two joined kingdoms. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like that of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. Greece, a kingdom which conquered most of the Middle Eastern world with great speed, but ends up splitting into four individual kingdoms. And then we come to our fourth creature, where all the emphasis comes up. After that, in my night vision, or my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. The fourth beast is given no animal representation. 
this terrifying, powerful iron teeth. And it's worth noting that for each of the four creatures, we're meant to see the parallel back of this chapter 2. Daniel's statue, or Nebuchadnezzar's statue. The iron being the iron feet. So whatever interpretation you do with Daniel 2 helps us with Daniel 7. The beast has ten horns, which is explained later as a number of kings. But then there is one that comes, removes three, and speaks boastfully. And it's worth being cautious here. We can do some pretty crazy things if we wanted to. We're helped by the parallel between Daniel 2 and this vision. It leads us to initially see that this beast refers to Rome. But apocalyptic literature, with its zoomed out view, often represents kingdoms which go beyond the initial image. The beast of Rome is not only Rome, but characterizes the whole world in opposition to God. Much like what we saw in Revelation 17. But it is worth noting that this is debated. There are many who would put that fourth beast as still future, having not yet come. But I think Daniel 2 pushes us to see that, at least in some part, it's speaking specifically about Rome. Still future for Daniel. But other parts of it are still future too, which means that it does both. It's initially here, but finally again at the end. And if you're looking at that notes page, I have tried to draw for you with all my artistic talent some diagrams, which I'm going to refer to just to kind of help us and guide us. If pictures are worth a thousand words, they're at least worth five hundred. <laughs> The first one is a picture that I'm just going to do the first one now. Is a timeline. There's Daniel, there's Jesus, come to him, us today in the future. Many people put it in one of those categories. Potentially that is a mistake. And then my second image, though, I hope will help us understand apocalyptic literature and prophecy in general slightly better. Um, it's how does prophetic visions work? And you know, this definitely shows the limitations of my art skills. <coughs> Daniel is our stick figure all the way on the left. He looks and he sees those are mountains, just as a heads up. <laughs> he looks and he sees that the vision is there, truly represented. He sees a mountain, and he describes that mountain for us. It's one mountain. It goes up and then back down. And this is what is called prophetic telescoping, which is what those like boxes are. I'm trying to draw a telescope for you. Just like how a telescope can be folded down into one small compartment where all the layers overlap, it's just like tunnel vision. From a different angle, more, with a more time perspective, we know that the vision is expanded, happens over multiple sections. A man further across, an expanded telescope, sees the mountain in its fullness, 
a large amount of range that goes up and down multiple times. And this is how prophecy often works in the Bible. Think, for instance, of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord when Jesus comes. But the day of the Lord happens when Jesus first comes, but ultimately comes at the end. And since prophecy works in this way, we must be careful when we think about the fourth piece of this vision. If we liken it just to Rome, just to the time of Jesus, it becomes reductionist. He doesn't see something finally coming. What looks like it happens just one time for an apocalyptic literature happens again and again. Because ultimately, in the end, there is a fourth beast which devours the whole world. And it wages war against God's kingdom. It's Satan's kingdom which wages against God's kingdom. Alright. If I've lost you at any point up to now, that's okay. Come back. We're going to understand the main point of our passage now. I'm helped because the angel tells us what that is. Thank you, angel. <laughs> so come and see with me in verse 16. Daniel's confused. So he approaches one of those standing there and asks him the meaning of all of this. And so he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. Four great beasts are four kings that will rise up from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. So that's our main point. Let's split that into two things. Firstly, the beast oppresses for a time. And then secondly, God's people possessing the kingdom forever. Daniel's main point here seems to actually repeat what we saw in chapter 2. But in chapter 2, the vision was even further zoomed out, that all we got in the way of interaction between the two kingdoms, which remember was the statue and the stone, was that God's kingdom shattered the statue. God's kingdom shattered the kingdoms. <coughs> but as we get more details, as the vision is fleshed out, there's a bit of a bite. The positives and victory of our chapter are almost overshadowed by the trials of this little horn, this king that comes to wage war against God and his people. See verse 21 with me. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them. And then verse 25. This horn, he will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for time, times, and half a time. Unlike the vision of chapter 2, what seemed to be a clear victory, we now see comes through persecution. God's people are delivered. They are saved. 
There is a kingdom that they move into and possess, but it's after a time of pain, being subjected to the world. But we shouldn't be surprised, because like Daniel, he's surrounded by Babylon, a nation which opposed God with everything of its being, with all of its gods. That world hasn't changed. We're still surrounded by the same world, with the same opposition, just with a much more modern labour. That opposition doesn't always come in the same way. It's not always crushing death. There is opposition, it's kind of a wooing of us. If you don't perform or conform to particular sexual ethics in your job, you're at risk. It can be taken from you. Opposition that eventually may mean that your kids are deemed to be at risk of your beliefs. Oppositions in that our view as Christians are actually attacked and demeaned on every side, described as old-fashioned and draconic. Opposition just felt in being different from the world. But events that our friends go to, we don't want to. Or let's raise the bar. <clears throat> Opposition, like in many countries around the world, where Christians, if they meet, the government rocks up at their door. Or, like one of my friends this week, working overseas, was just talking to two men about the gospel. <clears throat> one takes out a knife. Step. Spends four hours interrogated. It's hard and scary. Should not be surprised. Because the scriptures warn us suffering is to come. We live in a world that is hostile to the gospel. But this beast and this suffering are only for a time. That's clear in Daniel 7. This is the great thing about Daniel 7. Is that even though the oppression and the suffering under that beast seems so large, we're out of God's control. God's people are delivered over for a time, times, and half a time, our passage says. Which is like apocalyptic lingo for a specified time cut short for the sake of God's people. And Daniel has already seen all of this at work so far in his book. Our passage comes at the start of Belshazzar's reign. But he has seen Nebuchadnezzar, who has opposed God's people time and time again, eventually just be reduced to an animal. 
history convincing? Or maybe you're already too convinced. You may think that the whole of our reality is truly collapsing around us. That everything just gets more hostile. That there's no hope. But God's people have gone into Babylon. They will return at a specified time. They were told before they even went in that they were there for 17 years. Time set prior by God. And we see opposition now in all the powers of our time. China, maybe America, maybe Russia. Is Russia still a power? I'm not sure. The European Union, maybe just Michael Gower. <laughs> and they look so big and so strong. We may even be fearful. But they rise and fall, and God makes them rise and fall. It's all in God's hand and timing. The fourth beast is, while it opposes God's people, it's only for a time. Well, now let's look at God and his kingdom. Let's run through the players involved. God is outlined clearly for us. We're given like a dream glimpse of him through apocalyptic glasses in verses 9 and 10. Thrones are set in place, and the ancient days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair on his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands upon ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Daniel sees God seated on his throne. Clothes white, pure, representing his righteousness. White hair reflecting wisdom that comes with age, as well as authority. His throne matches the awesome throne of Ezekiel 1. Fire representing judgment. Wheels so that it's not stationary but goes around the whole earth. And all heaven is serving him. And he is the judge. And it's time for court. gives great comfort to know that no matter what happens, God is in charge, and he is the judge. There's no question in Daniel who's in charge. Even the opposition and oppression of God's people is only as long as what God has in it. It's important that as we go into Daniel 7, we have that view of God. He is just and the judge. Because that gives us hope. It helps us see and trust him even when it's hard. But he's not the only figure of God's kingdom. There's a new figure who's introduced here. One like a son of man. 
who does more than what any man can do. Before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient days and was led into his presence. He's given authority, glory, and sovereign power to all nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom will be one that will never be destroyed. If you've been reading Daniel up to this point, it's the kings of Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, which have been seeking these things for themselves. Nebuchadnezzar wanted all nations to bow down to him and his statue. But Belteshazzar wanted to show his power by drinking the idols of God's house. And Darius himself made a law that only he was to be prayed to. All those actions were man trying to get honour and glory that belongs only to God. But here we see the Son of Man who is given that glory, given that kingdom. Not only is he able to reach into heaven, but he is welcomed there. The kingdom is given to him. Who is this Son of Man? One who is able to approach God, come with the clouds of heaven. With the benefit of time in Scripture, we know that this refers clearly to Jesus. The language of Daniel 7 matches that what happens in Matthew 28 after his death and resurrection. This is what Jesus says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go to all the nations. Through what Jesus accomplishes by his death and resurrection, the kingdom of God breaks into our world. Power and authority are given to Jesus. And the end of the beast, the kingdom of Satan, is at hand. But you might have some questions. If that happened back then, why are Christians still suffering now? What about all that pressure? Well, Jesus is ruling. Power and authority are his. But the world is still in rebellion. Not everything has been put under his feet, as Hebrews 2 puts it. I've tried to illustrate this simply in our third diagram. Down the bottom we have the kingdom of this world. We have Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, which brings in kingdom of God. And we live what's called the overlap of the ages. We live in this world where Satan still rebels, but we know that Jesus also, also rules and will finish the job. 
we wait for the climax of the second coming of Jesus, when this world ends and final judgment kicks in, when there is no more rebellion. We live in that tension. And it's in that space of the Holy Ones that God's kingdom is now. It's worth noting that in our passage, and unlike the Son of Man, God's Holy Ones in our passage don't do much. They're just acted upon. Daniel may have had an idea about a war, maybe a, a later fight against this fourth beast, but no, no, in this time, they get defeated. And if we can rightly identify with these people, much like Daniel and his fellow exiles, being oppressed is a natural part of living in a world as a Christian which opposes God's kingdom. But we don't stay there. Son of Man ascends to heaven and is seated. His kingdom goes forever. And so his people follow him. We see this ended in 26 and 27. But the courts will sit, and his power will be taken away completely and destroyed forever. It's the beast. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. That depicts the end, when the rebellion is quenched. And this helps us because we see that. Those that follow the Son of Man, likewise, join him. Daniel in his vision sees the start and the growth of that kingdom and the end of that kingdom, or the kingdom that goes on forever. We see Jesus who comes to earth as a man, though fully God. He comes and represents humanity, lives a perfect life, suffers and dies, takes the penalty for us, so that those that are part of his kingdom are saved. Their sins are paid for, they're dealt away with. And our passage shows and proves that it's efficiency by showing that Jesus ascends. He goes to his Father's presence and receives the kingdom. If we follow him, though we may suffer now in this life, our end is with him. If we follow the king, the king who in the, in the end, every nation and all of will worship. And it's a secure end. This helps us now because our suffering is only for a time. The oppression is only for a time. And that really gives us freedom now 
to live and love self-sacrificially for him. You don't have to earn the kingdom. Jesus has done that. We get a pattern of this in Acts. Throughout Acts, the disciples are going out, preaching even in the face of opposition. Because they know that the kingdom awaits them. And for you, it might mean that the conversation that you need to have with your friend or neighbour is less daunting. means that the solution is not giving into the world, taking the easier path. Because that will lead to destruction. We need to remember in times of temptation and oppression, not to cave in, to hold fast to the Son of Man who has gone into heaven on our behalf before us. This world's path looks easy, it looks joyful, but it's but for a short time. We see in our passage the end, the everlasting kingdom. We see Jesus coming and saving all those that are oppressed, oppressed for the sake of the gospel. And we're meant to desire that kingdom. Desire a time when all that is wrong in this world, when all sin and rebellion is dealt away with, and when justice finally comes. For those in times of suffering and strife for the gospel, <coughs> Daniel 7 shows and is that kingdom. That God is in control. The oppression and suffering now is but for time. And God's kingdom will reign forever. And it's hard now when things aren't so bad. But there are many for whom this is exactly what they need to hear. There are only two kingdoms, one which reigns now for a time, the other for all time, and we wait when the kingdom returns. help us to seek that more and more, to pray for your kingdom to come. We commit this in the name of your Son.